Hi, I'm Casey Lemons. I am the co-writer and the director of Harriet. It was the most interesting way I've ever come onto a film. I was invited onto this film. They were really trying to figure out how they were going to put it together. Um, they had a, a, an old script that had this wonderful idea of kind of Harriet Tubman as a superhero. And I was brought in to figure out the vision and to ground it. So I did about seven months of research on Harriet, and I wanted to bring her story. So how to start a film about Harriet Tubman? I talk a lot in teaching. I'm a professor at NYU grad film school, and I talk a lot about introduction to character. And I thought, what a wonderful way to introduce Harriet, which if you've seen the movie, you, you'll understand why. Uh, to see this this woman lying unconscious in a field, you know? And and you're like, wait a minute, where am I and why, is, why does she appear to be sleeping in a field? And then you see she's having a dream or a vision. And um, Harriet, Harriet was very haunted by watching her sisters sold when she was a young girl. She watched her, her sisters being taken away. And... Um, I knew that I wanted to make this film about those kinds of traumas, you know, that the scars that come from family separation. And the other thing was we had studied, Cynthia and I studied Harriet's face when we were trying to channel her and bring her, and we studied her downturned mouth, and we are like, wow, she looks like a woman who, who, who doesn't smile very often. And uh, I thought it was interesting to start her in the scene with her husband where you see her smile, you know? And the audience kind of, you don't know why, why she's starting like this, but this is, this is her love. This is the love of her life, her husband, John. And this is her hope. Her hope is based on the fact that she's hired a lawyer, which I found so interesting. She hired a lawyer to try and prove that her mother should be freed and that uh, all of her mother's children were supposed to be freed. And this was written in a will by her master's great-grandfather who had owned her, her mother's mother, and had given her mother as a child to his granddaughter. So the Brodus family had owned the Ross family for a long time, but Harriet was proving, was gonna prove his intention that her mother be freed at the age, manumitted, they call it, manumission, um, to be freed at the age of 45. This was the first day we shot, and uh, it's an interesting scene because, um, you know, it has a lot of edge to it. I love this song because it's a double meaning, and of course the songs speak a lot about double meanings. Um, that was super important to me, that uh, on one level it could look like the enslaved people were singing because they were kind of, um, you know, um, acquiescent, but there were messages in the spirituals, and I thought that that was fascinating. And the curry their favor, but do it with sincerity of heart. And reverence for the Lord. Now, Reverend Green is a, a real character. This is a man who was very interesting, who um, 
as you find out later, is not all he seems in this first scene. And uh, I wanted to talk a lot about how free people and enslaved people in this particular region, the Chesapeake region, lived right, you know, next to each other, in communities right next to each other, and, and um, intermarried. And uh, I thought that was fascinating. So Harriet is enslaved, and her husband is free. Her father, this is her father that, that Clark plays, Clark Peters, he's a free man. He, uh, he was enslaved, and then he was freed by his master. And yet his wife and his children are still enslaved. Let him marry her. What's your point? And I thought that that was this wonderful kind of complexity of this community um, that I wanted to bring out. Me and Minty, we thinking about having a family. And we want our babies bone free. Can you imagine that, that an, a free man marries an enslaved woman knowing that their children would be enslaved? And so I thought he must have loved her, you know, very much to have married married an enslaved woman and and it kind of speaks to her charisma and her you know what was special about her that he chose to marry her well you got this will got a letter from the lawyer see so of course um minty araminta ross um presents this letter this this proof that her mother should have been freed and um and Brodus, of course, he completely ignores that. <laughs> you know, they um, they weren't trying to hear that at all. Everyone's performance here is so wonderful. I I love the shock, and you know, hope is is killed um, very quickly. You know. Uh, but I thought it was important to start the film with hope. Your babies will belong to me, and their babies. And then this is the grim reality that she's facing now. You understand me? You're the devil. And there is no hope. You're the devil, Andrew Brodus. You stole my daughter's soul when nobody knew their name. Actually, there have been three daughters sold. When Harriet was just a baby, her eldest sister Mariah was sold. And then Soph and Lena were sold uh, when she was um, a young girl. Come on. Come on. I wanted to speak to family because I feel like um, it was kind of underrepresented in stories of this period um, about enslaved people. Yet the Rosses, there were many. Uh, many kids in the Ross family, and they managed to have a marriage and a family, and they loved each other. And I thought that was such an important thing to speak on. If you can't change his soul, take him. Take him. This scene was important to me because it was a true story in Harriet's life where when she found out that her master was not going to honor, um, uh, you know, what the lawyer had said and, and free her mother and, and her family, he wasn't going to honor that. She cursed him. She cursed him and wished him dead. Is your little black face praying? 
scared the feet right out of me. Gideon, this character, Gideon Brodus, was based on the Broduses were real people, Edward and his wife, Eliza. They had children. And there was a, a, a son named Jonathan who was around the same age as Harriet. In real life, I did not know much about him. Historians don't know much about him. But he was the one that, that took the slaves to market when they were going to be sold. And, and I based this character of Gideon Brodus on Jonathan. He warned me. Boy, having a favorite slave is like having a favorite piece. This dialogue I got from actual, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that Southern planters and slave owners wrote um, quite, you know, un <laughs> it's hard to imagine that they weren't embarrassed by this, but they wrote about um, their feelings and, and trying to justify slavery. And I got that line, there's no more guilt than separating piglets, talking about selling slave children. And I thought it was one of the most um, chilling things I'd ever read. And so I decided to put that in. I mean, sometimes real life and what people of the times thought and felt is, is stranger than fiction. Um, but I wanted to give you a sense of, you know, that was their justification, the mental gymnastics that, that slaveholders had to do in order to justify keeping people enslaved um, was amazing and astonishing. And they were very forthright about it and, um, and wrote about it. <laughs> So this is actually Harriet. Harriet has visions. Um, this is true, and it was astonishing for me to realize once I did the research that this was part of her story, that she had visions. And, and what we do know that's true is that she prayed that her master would die, and he did uh, within a very short amount of time. And she felt somewhat um, responsible for this. You know, she, she felt a certain amount of guilt and, and fear at what would happen next. This location, the Brodus Farm, um, was an amazing place. It was, it was a place where once there had been, I think, a thousand enslaved people. And you could really feel, feel that in the, in the property. You could feel, you could feel their spirit. You know, you could feel that you were standing on hallowed ground where enslaved people had lived and worked. It was very rich and interesting. So we do know that Brodus um, decided to, that he was going to sell uh, Araminta. And, um, and according to her, she had a vision from God telling her this. She, she, she had a specific vision that said, run now, leave now. And she knew that she would have to go. Harriet's visions uh, became very important to me, very important to trying to, to figure out what that felt like and what that looked like. And I went through um, I went through a big process of trying to figure out what the visualization of that should be. I gotta go right now. And eventually settled on I'm coming with you. this monochromatic tone. And the reason was that 
that it said that Harriet had seizures, that her spells were seizures, and and I I looked up seizures and um and kind of studied them, and I I found the word monochromatic, in terms of what what people felt they were seeing when they were having a seizure. I found that word repeated um, several times, and um, so I ultimately went back to kind of a monochromatic um, palette in 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 her visions because I thought they're you know. They're visions from God. There's something divine about them, uh, but they're also seizures that she's having. Harriet had seizures. Um, she had these spells where she would fall asleep and you couldn't rouse her, which is amazing when you think of the work she did because she was completely not in control of it. Uh, but she also came to believe that that they were divine, that that's when she, she uh, had divine messages from God. I'm gonna leave you. So using her voice, having Cynthia, who's the actual singer, Cynthia and I had to really decide what Harriet's voice sounded like. We knew it didn't sound like Cynthia's voice. We wanted, um, but we didn't have any, there were no recordings of Harriet singing. So we didn't know what she actually sounded like. We had to try and, um, it was one of the many things we had to try and channel, you know? Uh, And so Cynthia was able to place her voice lower in order to, um, for us to kind of bring Harriet's singing voice to life, this form of communication. So I love this scene because she's, she's telling, she's saying goodbye to her family without, without that being observable to um, the overseers and, and the, her slave masters. And that was very important that, that enslaved people used spirituals to communicate and it was completely under the radar over the heads of the whites around them Um, it was the language that they cultivated it was ingenious so what we know from history is that Harriet ultimately ran alone there are stories that, that she tried to run first with her brothers and that they had a change of heart. But ultimately, Harriet ran alone. Um, on, on this occasion, on this day in September, she, um, she ran and she did it alone, and we don't know the exact circumstances of why she made that decision, but she did, and she, she left her husband and her family because God told her she was going to be sold. You got no business here. Just come and see my wife is all, sir. It's always hard not being able to see her. Now you better get used to missing her. In casting Gideon, um, in casting Joe, it was very important to me that um, he be a decent person, you know. The studio asked me to, to talk to Joe Alwyn, and um, I had seen some of his work, and. We got on a Skype call, a long Skype call, and I just kind of fell in love with him. He's just such a decent person and such a gentleman, and I thought um, if he was willing to access this character, you know, his kind of dark side, or this, if he was really willing to go there, that it would be a real advantage to having somebody who was such a good guy, and um, that would allow... Cynthia to feel comfortable. And, you know, we kind of had a no-assholes policy um, 
in dealing with material like this, we really try to surround ourselves with good people and have a really good, healthy work environment. And it it gave the actors um, a feeling of freedom, like they could play, you know? And it's something I'm very proud of, the kind of environment that, that we created, this the feeling that we created on set. So we know that um, that from history that that Ben was a very well respected timber expert at Thompson's Mill. Um, he worked for A.C. Thompson, and uh, he was free. Like I said, he had been freed um, because maybe because of his 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 worth, his his value in the community, his value to Thompson as a worker and as um as a timber expert. And he was so trusted and felt to be a man with such integrity that he didn't want to lie and say he'd seen somebody, you know? Um, he didn't want to lie about that and say he hadn't seen somebody that he'd actually seen, rather. He didn't want to, um, he didn't want to be a liar. He wanted to be able to maintain that sense of integrity. So that's why he doesn't look at her. He knows right away that she's going to run, and he doesn't look at her so that later he can say he hasn't seen her and he will be telling the truth. And I, th I found that very moving. Um, it's actually a story from, from later on, a scene that comes up later. Go on now. With her brothers. But I found it very moving, so I used it here. I thought, you know, creating this kind of wonderful goodbye between Ben and Minty. They were very close. She had a very strong connection to her father. Um, there's also some indication that maybe he shared some of her kind of psychic spirituality, that maybe that was something that they shared. But they were close, they had a special bond. I love this scene, and Clark Peters, he's such a wonderful actor, such a deep and wonderful human, you know, you see his humanity. I was so privileged to work with him. So we, we don't know exactly where Araminta went when she, when she ran. We know that people helped her along the way. Um, that a, a Quaker woman might have given her some directions. But once I found out that she had this family closeness with Reverend Green, who was this wonderful, um, like I said, this, this wonderful true life character, there's some indication that they were related because her mother, Rit, was a Green. And uh, so, so it's possible that they were even related. But Reverend Green is a very fascinating character. What do you mean they motivated? And this is where we find out kind of who he really is when he's not speaking or giving sermons in front of the slave masters. They'll beat you, hobble you owe us. Now you go alone. You got about a half chance. I love shooting this scene, but this night it was incredibly um, windy, and uh, we're all outside, and um, I'm the only one uh, inside with her besides the immediate crew that needs to be there. And, uh, you know, so, so the whole crew is outside with tents that are kind of blowing over <laughs> in the wind. Um, 
and it was it was wet and muddy. Uh, a lot of this winter that we shot this fall, I think it was one of the wettest autumns that there had been in Virginia in like hundred years or something. Like it was very, the weather was bad, um, and it was it made for kind of miserable shooting conditions. Um, but this scene is so intimate. And in fact, it was very intimate. There were very few of us in the room. He is your enemy. Trust in God. And I love that scene. Uh, that, of course, is um, the great Vondi Curtis Hall, who is also my husband, playing Reverend Green. Um, he's a wonderful actor. And uh, I've done four movies with Vondi now. Um, and I hope to do many more. He's, he's, he's a lovely actor. After a few days' time, Delaware River be on your right. With nothing more than kind of the North Star and some, some vague directions, uh, she went alone, which is, which is amazing when you think about it. I mean, how did, she, how did she have the courage? Because when runaways were caught, uh, they were tremendously punished, sometimes killed, sometimes hobbled, sometimes left in cages on the road to dissuade other runaways. And I wanted to give you that sense of, of danger that she was facing. Of course, once she ran away, one can imagine how they treated her husband, you know? Of course, he would have be questioned about uh, if he knew where she where she was, and it was probably very hard on him that she ran away and 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 left him to kind of answer. We were in the woods a lot, <laughs> and uh, I have a, a love and a, a, of nature and. Um, a respect for nature, but sometimes it was it was it was quite difficult. You didn't know. Um, we would try and run the paths that that Cynthia had to run as Harriet, as Minty, and um, and make sure they were safe. Our stunt coordinators tried to make sure everything was safe, but you still had uh, a great deal of, of fear. And she was, um, you know, she was quite fast um, and nimble, but. Uh, still, we had to make sure that the ground was going to be safe for the dogs and the horses. The horses weren't going to slip in them. Like I said, it was very muddy. Um, and there's this wonderful shot that I had envisioned of her running across this great expanse of field where she's, she's um, exposed. But of course, um, how do you shoot somebody running across a great expanse? Um, so she, well, she, we changed screen directions. <laughs> so she... Um, she ran, and then halfway, we changed green directions, and um, so it could appear that she, she ran across the whole field. It was fun, I think. Even John Toll was slightly confused by that when I first mentioned it, but it works perfectly. So she looks as if she arrives to the other side. So uh, this was a very interesting, this was called, was High Bridge, where we shot this. And uh, in weather, once you'd had storms and these great rains, there would sometimes, uh, the river would rush. Um, on the day that we shot this, uh, 
it was not particularly rushing. It was moving. And I knew that I wanted it to be rushing. So, so that's a visual effect uh, of the rushing river. We, we, um, we shot an element of, um, in the area of a river that was rushing, and, and we composited it through visual effects. And it makes it quite, you know, dramatic. This is a very fun scene to shoot, um, a very crucial scene, uh, because Harriet, I look at Harriet as a, as a, she was a resistance fighter, and she resisted in every way she could. You know, she tried, she tried to resist legally first, you know, hiring a lawyer. Uh, then she decided to run, but Harriet, Harriet said many times and eloquently, I figured there was one of two things I had a right to, liberty or death. And if I couldn't have one, I would have the other. And uh, and so this is her making that decision. You can come on back. You know that um. I won't hurt you bad. That she's gonna be free. Stay at home. Stay with John. Or die. Stay with us. Would you like that? I'm gonna be free or die. I love how the score changes there right before, um, right before she jumps. You know, you just get this little hint that Terrence Blanchard brought in of, um, of this choice. I love how he expressed that. So this is actually um, in this area where we were shooting. Uh, there was this little river, and I thought, okay, this is this is down river. She's she's they've come, they've searched. They've searched high and low for her, and um, and Gideon, of course, has a confusion of feelings for Araminta, for Minty. He, she's his property, and he feels um, passionately about that, and it's it's confusing to him as well. Um, so he experiences her loss on a deep level that maybe arouses emotions that he can't quite explain. It was quite common for enslaved children and the children of their masters, their slave owners, to play when they were little kids. And, um, and so sometimes your first playmates, the first playmates of the slave owner's children were the enslaved children. And they would play together and form, you know, maybe these these kinds of friendships. And then, at a certain age, they would they would separate them, and um, and make it very clear uh, what the relationship between them was, if it wasn't already clear in childhood. And so, I really wanted to explore that with the characters of um, of Minty and Gideon. I love this scene so much where she's running barefoot across this expanse of field. And it's so beautiful, you know? Um, and there are people right there. And she manages to, to hide herself for a minute, and then she wakes up and, and the carriage is moving. Cynthia Revo. It was such a revelation to me um, at the time that I 
that I met her first met Cynthia, I had already begun to do research. Uh, the producers had already uh, had spoken to me about rewriting the script, and I'd done. I was begun to do research while Cynthia was off doing two movies back to back, and um, Widows and and um, Bad Times at Hotel Royale. And when I first met her, she she walked into the Russian tea room where we were meeting. I was kind of deserted that day. And as she walked in, I began to see the Harriet that I had, that, that was taking form in front of me as I was doing my research. It was amazing. She was tiny like Harriet, strong like Harriet, fierce like Harriet. And, um, you know, Cynthia is an extreme athlete. Um, and I knew that she would bring that physicality into the role that would require that physicality. She's so magnificent, you know? She's vulnerable and strong at the same time. You know a blacksmith around here named McGarrett? I had this vision, this big arc for her character that was from Minty to Harriet into the more kind of mythic version of herself, Moses. And so we defined her like that. We said, okay, she's Minty um, in these scenes, she's Harriet in these scenes, and she's Moses in these scenes. And um, and she really brought that, everyone did. It, it, it you know, even Paul Tazewell, who designed the costumes, um, we all worked together to really build that arc. And, um, and she really brought it. So Minty, Minty is, is in some ways an, an unsophisticated young woman. Um, she's certainly smart and, and, um, and wise enough to hire a lawyer to attempt to do that and then brave enough to run alone. But she hasn't been, um, she's been only been working on different farms you know, for her whole childhood and, and, and young life. But she's, she's a special person. She has, she's touched, you know, she's touched by God and, um, and is in communication with the higher power. And that gives her her strength. This scene was amazing because you know, of course, as a director, you know what time of day you want to shoot something, and you know uh, you've chosen your locations carefully, and you've chosen it for emotional impact. And this day, it rained. <laughs> it poured. It was pouring when we got to work, and I knew that I wanted this... The scene takes place at sunrise, but that we were going to shoot it at sunset. And uh, carefully, you know, um, you've planned it all out, and then it's raining that day. And Oh, my God, everybody's sinking into despair. It was a very hard day. She didn't like to change back and forth between Harriet and Minty. Those were it was a big, it was a big change for her to make, and also hair and makeup and wardrobe. It was a big change, and she had to change back and forth that day for for some scheduling reason. And um, everybody was cranky, and it was it was just a gray, dark day. I called makeup, and I'm like, please, I need her at the top of the hill. Please, please, can we just get her there? And we, we slog through the mud, we get to the top of the hill, we build the crane, and she comes. And at that moment, the sun breaks through the clouds, 
And this is really what happened. I mean, it's, it's, it gives me chills. Um, <laughs> and we all felt that, you know, the, the sky had parted for Harriet as she walks into freedom. What you can't see is that behind her, there's a double rainbow. And so we did this in, in one or two takes. And the whole crew burst into tears <laughs> and uh, everybody had their cell phones out shooting the, the sky and the rainbow. And it was, um, it was an incredibly uplifting kind of magical day on set. And then she arrives in Philadelphia, which is Petersburg, Virginia. We shot the whole thing on location. Um, and there's this town, Petersburg, which has these wonderful cobbled streets and old buildings. And so we recreated Philadelphia. Uh, Warren Allen Young, our production designer, you know, worked very hard on this. Is is a movie that's you know um, shot with an economy of means, let's say, and um, and yet we are really able through wardrobe and production design um, and, and costume design and, and hair and makeup and casting, you know, um, the, the background players. We were really able to bring you to the 1850s. I'm super proud of that. Um, so we know at some point after arriving in Philadelphia that Harriet meets and befriends William Still, who's a very important figure in the Underground Railroad, a very important character historically. So cast Leslie Odom Jr. to play to play William Still and Leslie. I mean, he's just one of the most charismatic people alive. Um, he's he's just so uh, he's beautiful and he's he's um, alive. You know, that's what you feel with Leslie. He's just alive in every moment. And Leslie and Cynthia are very good friends. She's actually the godmother of his child. Um, I think they met while they were both on Broadway, he and Hamilton, and, and she in The Color Purple, and when they were doing the Tony Award circuit, they became very, very good friends, and they have amazing screen chemistry. And uh, I love this scene. We shot this scene, it was very late at night, I think it was um, 3.30 in the morning. Um, we were all extremely tired. We were happy to be shooting um, in Petersburg, which was kind of like a little town and instead of being the woods. <laughs> so uh, so we, we had a little lift from that, but we were very tired at this point in the film. And it was very, very late. And it was a very important scene. But they, you know, they nailed it in very few takes. So where are the others? In the whole movie, we did very few takes, sometimes frighteningly few takes. We kind of ran through the schedule. And I was able to do that because of how good the actors are, because of how convincing they were and how prepared they were and how quickly we could get there together. By some miraculous means, you have made it 100 miles to freedom all by yourself. So this is a very important moment uh, where she identifies herself, you know, um, 
William Still kept the records of enslaved people in his journals. And often they changed their names. Oh, my mama name and my husband. Harriet Tubman. So at this moment, she begins to shape her destiny. She, she begins to take control of her destiny. She becomes Harriet. Do you have wounds or scars or beatings? So um, this, of course, is a very important incident in young Harriet Tubman's life. Um, she was she was 13 years old, and um, and she she was running an errand, and she went to um, kind of this country store at this crossroads, um, and an overseer came in looking for there was a young man, there was a young enslaved man that was running. Uh, or, or maybe just defying his his overseer, who who had come into the store, and his overseer came in behind him, extremely angry, and he picked up a weight from the counter to hurl it at at the enslaved man he was chasing, and she stepped between them, and it hit her right in the head, and cracked her head open, and um, you saw it before that. and. She was carried back to her farm, and, um, you know, they put her in kind of the weaving room, you know, on a loom to recover. Um, they just kind of propped her up someplace, and, and then she was made to... Um, she, she was unconscious for a long time and, and um, very sick. And then as soon as she could stand, she was made to work again in the fields with blood and sweat running in her eyes. Um, can you imagine... But after that time, she had these visions, you know, um, which seemed to have some relation to her head injury. And yet she feels are divine. She feels absolutely certain that, um, that there's a line of communication between her and God. And I thought that that was super, um, super interesting. So in the scene, I kind of tie it to... Um, the young man to her brother. We don't know exactly who that young man was. Um, this is a wonderful location, and in the production design, I wanted to capture, you know, what freedom looks like and, and the colors of freedom. So Marie Buchanan, there was a real woman named Marie Buchanan who was a friend of William Stills, and, um, and an abolitionist, very supportive of the cause. And uh, this character is based somewhat on her, but really, um, really, she's an invented character, a composite character that's based on a real person. Uh, there was, Marie was in um, Gregory Allen Howard's original script. There was a character named Marie, um, who befriended Harriet. And then I, I worked very hard on this relationship because I thought it was, it was so interesting, the distinction between them, one free and a, an establishment owner and one born enslaved. And I, I felt that this was a wonderful opportunity to show the texture and complexities of the lives of African-Americans of the period you know, southern and northern, 
enslaved and free. Um, so you have you have uh, you have people that are literally running for their lives and that have always been property considered property of somebody and and then you have a character like Marie played so beautifully by Janelle Monet um, who is supportive of the cause and, and empathetic um, but who has never experienced those things herself. I love these scenes. Um, we shot these scenes in, in here, in this room. Uh, this washroom kitchen that, that's belonging to Marie's establishment. Um, we shot them very late at night. Uh, once again, it was probably two or three in the morning. Um, and we were running out of time. We, we had to get the crew off the clock. Um, and Cynthia had to be in makeup to get the scars put on her body. It was very important to me that, um, that they show the scars that they've accumulated, um, though I was not going to show them physically being beaten. I felt that that had been done very well in other movies. I, but I wanted to show the scars, especially the emotional scars of slavery. But anyway, she had been in makeup, and, um, you know, it takes time. To, uh, Angie Wells, uh, the head of makeup, um, is applying, you know, prosthetic scars to her body. And I'm running out of time. <laughs> I'm running out of time, and I've got to shoot the scene. And um, we get her on set, and we get the two of them on set, and we only had a couple of takes to shoot that scene, and they just, they nailed it. It's so warm and beautiful. They don't pay us by the bushel. And Harriet's sadness, you know, comes through in this sequence as Cynthia just finds her melancholy. So here's, here she's free, finally. And the wonderful thing about the Harriet Tubman story, what's so miraculous about her story, is that who wouldn't have wanted to kind of rest and celebrate in their freedom, but not Harriet. Harriet was sad. She felt that if she was free, her family should be too. Others should be too. And so we wanted to capture her, her melancholy. And then Terrence wrote this wonderful theme that I love, um, that, that has both the melancholy and hope and intimacy. Um, I really love that theme. It'll reoccur. So this is also that same night that we shot uh, the scene where she um, where she gives him her name. She chooses her name, Harriet Tubman. Uh, I believe this is the same night, or it's possible it was the next night, but I, it was uh, late at night. Um, all these scenes were um, night for day, and and she, I mean they just nailed it. They just. I love Cynthia in this scene. She's she's amazing. Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. And their chemistry is just so alive, you know, like crackling. Harriet, I can't have you risking your life on this network because you're lonely. Rescuing slaves requires skill and careful planning. 
It requires reading. Now, here's a woman that could neither read nor write. Her entire life, she was literate. She had, she had another form of literacy, you know? She had her, her spirituality, but she did not ever learn to read or write, which is, I mean, astonishing. I made it this far on my own. God was watching, but my feet was my own. Running, bleeding, climbing, nearly drowned. Nothing to eat for days and days, man. I made it. So don't you tell me what I can't do. You don't know me. I love it. She's, you know, she's, she's just so great. I made up my mind. I'm going back. We had a wonderful dialect coach, Denise Woods. She's, she's one of the best, and um, she kept everybody on very specific accents uh and her work is really st it, it stands out in that way um that dialect good dialect coaching does where it doesn't stand out at all you know you you they seem in the period they seem of the region um it's very specific uh how do you do and and cynthia really nailed also the specific accent of Maryland, of the, of the Chesapeake region. Good. You're confident, composed. I like this scene quite a bit. Enough to know not to look a strange white man in the eyes. You don't want no trouble. Here are two women, kind of, you know, she's, they're empowering, she's empowering her, they're taking their power, they're taking control. Um, Marie's agreed to help her. And she wants her to be prepared. So this, this is, uh, actually very, very close to the revolver that Harriet carried. It's, um, it's very, very similar. We had a wonderful, magnificent prop master named Steve George, and he passed away shortly after we finished shooting. Um, he had a stroke and, and died, and he brought so much richness. There's so much, so much texture that's brought to a film by the props, especially period props. And um, his work in this film is so wonderful. And, you know, he, he's always going to be very alive to us through his magnificent work. So he found this gun that was very similar to the gun that Harriet had carried with her. And, and the bag that she carried, the bag that she has, that she has the gun in. Dessa Dixon. Yes, sir. Where were you born, Dessa? Philadelphia, July 18th, 1824. A free issue. It says here you're five and a half feet tall. You ain't more than five. I love this scene too because, um, because, you know, these they're enslaved people that have been captured, runaways that have been captured, and they watch this play out. You know. Um, and they don't know what's going to happen. And of course, they can't speak. And they, they're they the only ones that see that she's ready to defend herself, come what may, if if things take a turn for the worst, you know? And um, and that, you know, you can almost sense their relief uh, within their own misery when she uh, she doesn't pull out the gun. Dear brother-in-law, 
I hope you will. This is a very important scene to me. Um, I was trying to get you next to the mentality of the planters at the time. Now, the Brodus's, Edward Brodus died and left his wife in terrible debt. This is Jennifer Nettles, obviously a fabulous singer. Um, and Jennifer really wanted to play this part. She wrote a, a very eloquent letter explaining why she wanted to play Eliza Brodus. And, and Jennifer is very beautiful, you know, um, but Eliza's a woman that that works and um, is a hardworking farm woman. And so uh, Angie Wells and the, the, the makeup team, they had to actually, you know, give her sunspots, give her flaws to her skin. And um, it was very, you know, unglamorous, very plain, desperate woman that she's playing. Um, and I really love her performance. And the scene between them where they are, um, they're talking about, you know, selling human beings to relieve their debt. And that was very, um, you know, that was very realistic. Um, and in some ways it kind of like, uh, it's an interesting thing to, to ponder and to watch how, how people were treated as property and, and sold and, and um, you know, in financial hardship. So Harriet comes back for her husband at, at some point, um, not long after her escape, uh, within a couple years. She comes back for her husband all this way through incredible um, jeopardy, you know? She comes back for him, and she discovers that he has remarried. Um, she gets, she, she, she comes back and um, in real life, he refuses to see her um, and, and she sends word. She, she finds out that he has, he's remarried and, and, um, and he's not coming with her. And she's heartbroken, she's devastated. And she says she howled in anguish. Um, but of course, you know, in films, uh, you want to dramatize these emotions, these feelings, these events that happened. And so Gregory and I both, because um, he had a, a different version of it in his script, and, and um, I rewrote it in this script to try and get what what it would be like if they had met. And I felt that, that John loved her. You know, he must have loved her so much to have married her. And she did leave without him. She, um, she, she left and she went alone. And history has not been kind to John. Um, historians have not, been, uh, not looked at him kindly. But he must have loved her. And I wanted to get next to that love he must have felt for Minty. I thought you loved me. No. She did leave him and she did go back, very hopeful, 
that she could bring him to freedom as well. So we know it was a real marriage. Um, I love nobody. And in reading about her anguish when she found out that he was married, I really wanted to show that, you know, to show this scene between them. This is Zachary Moma. So Zach, Zach auditioned. He was my favorite audition, and um, and I went through a long process of of seeing other people playing John, seeing other actors, and. And eventually, you know, I'm like, I, I want to get that guy, the, the guy I like the best. He was one of the early people that had auditioned, and he, he was wonderful. And, um, and they have wonderful chemistry. You know, screen chemistry is never something you can entirely predict. You know, you hope your actors get along, and you try and create an environment where they, they get along and they, um, you know, play well together. But chemistry is almost this magical alchemic thing that happens between actors and between actors and a director. And uh, and this scene, you know, they have such wonderful chemistry. These two actors. I would have died for you. <laughs> if you'd have let me. Well, in fact, you know, we don't know. Um, she didn't let him. She, she ran alone. She, she decided to leave him. It would have been an incredible risk to him to uh, run with her, and, and um, that's likely what she had in mind, that he would be sacrificing his freedom if he were caught. He could be enslaved. So she, she ran without him, and when she went back, it was too late. He'd moved on with his life. He'd married a free woman, and she's devastated. This was a very interesting night. Um, she was exhausted. It's also very, very late at night. Um, Cynthia was exhausted. She's, you know, she's in every scene. She had this tremendously difficult role, and we're running through the schedule. And she came to me, and she, she didn't know how to go on with the scene. She didn't know. She said, "I'm just, I, I don't. Ha I'm exhausted." And I said, "Well, imagine how." exhausted Harriet is, that she's come back for her husband and just use that exhaustion. You're exhausted and you're so disappointed. And she, she was able to give that performance. That's something I feel really proud of. I think we both feel really proud that we, we were there for each other that night. Mindy. Mindy. John told me you were here. <laughs> This is, this is always kind of funny uh, and gets a laugh out of the audience, but, but actually this happened. He, um, he blindfolded himself so that he would not have to see... Daddy. He would not have to lie about what he had seen or not seen. Got your brothers hiding in the concrete. Because... fixing the cellar. Because her brothers actually had discovered that they were going to be sold, he won't leave and they'd run. And um, Ben did not want to have to, to lie, so they blindfolded him. His sons blindfolded him, or he blindfolded himself, so he wouldn't see his children. And I thought, wow, that's such a deep, an interesting and kind of weird 
quirky detail. You know, I have to, I have to put that in the film. She coming with us. Phoebe has to come too. So this scene again, you know, many people in it, her brothers and um, this group of freedom seekers, and it's very late at night. And everyone's very tired. And it's very, very muddy. We have to put down planks on the ground so that we can walk on it because the ground is so wet. Rachel too scared to run, Mitz. She said Miss Liza got a hawk out on her. And Mama? And somehow, Cynthia's exhaustion, you know, she's able to, great actors are able to use whatever they're experiencing and let it inform, you know, their character. And somehow, her exhaustion works here. You can see she's tired, but... But she's able to use that emotion, that emotion of, of, of what's just happened to her, you know, the scene that's just happened between she and her husband and her disappointment, and, and, um, and use her sorrow as a strength. And I feel that that is such a female characteristic and a characteristic of black women to turn sorrow into strength. So this is true. Her brother Robert left his wife right after she had she delivered a baby. He helped her deliver the baby, and then he had to leave her because he was going to be sold away from her anyway. And he was he was opting for freedom. Ain't but a few hours of dark left now. If y'all go on, y'all. It was this theme of family separation. That was so important to me. Um, these goodbyes. How do you say goodbye to your father, knowing you may never see him again? And um, and this scene is very well described in in by historians um, that he he kisses his children goodbye and, and he's blindfolded. I ain't going nowhere till all my children free. And they didn't say goodbye to their mother because she was a very emotional woman. And they felt that um, she might not have been able to take it. And so they leave without saying goodbye to their mother. They say goodbye to their father. And he waits until they're, they're out of sight before he removes the blindfold. So this is Walter. We'll talk more about Walter um, in a minute. But uh, Walter Walter became a very important character to me. Um, he's played by my son, Henry Hunter Hall. You trust me? So this is the same uh, muddy night, you know, um, in that we're, that we're shooting the church stuff with Reverend Green, um, wet and cold. Carl, it's good to see you. How'd you come back? Almost didn't believe it. Joseph Lee Anderson 
plays her oldest brother, Robert. And um, he becomes a very important character uh, for me. He's, um, he's both her brother, Robert, and a composite um, character as well. He's very proud, Robert, and he, um, and th there's conflict between he and, and his sister. And we know that from history because um, when they first considered running together, um, uh, they fought amongst themselves and, and her brothers uh, came back and, and she came back, in fact, and left alone at a different point. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to bring their relationship into it. Um, Deborah Yende, who plays Rachel, her sister, is such a wonderful actress. I hope she has a very big, long career. She's beautiful and she's she's so emotional and um, really, truly gifted. And this scene, you know, this is a hard scene for them because, like I say, Joe Alwyn's a lovely person. <laughs> he really is. Uh, but he's, he's somehow able to access this. And London, this little girl um, who plays plays Andrine, her Rachel's daughter, um, is also such a gifted young actor, you know? Um, but when you're directing children, it's interesting. I have to, I'm talking her through it off camera, kind of talking through her emotions. Um, so that she can give that performance. And, and then we had babies. We had several, couple of babies that we used in the movie, which is also tricky, you know? <laughs> Animals and babies, right? Good Lord, I hope it is. But it, it, it brings such a visceral kind of um, reality to it, I think, that, you know, Enslaved people are always worried their children were in danger. So Walter is an interesting character. Um, I was really trying to express in the danger of the times, in the danger of Harriet's world, in the treachery of her journey, there were mercenaries who worked for whoever would pay them. Sometimes they work for one side, sometimes they work for the other. And... Um, and there were many of the of these free uh, black people that were, um, you know, were not always noble, um, and and would would work for the slave catchers, and um, inform on runaways. And so Walter is playing. Uh, Walter is 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 this character to me. I I. I invented him based on a character that occurs later in her life. Um, and I tried to imagine where they first, where, where how he entered the story um, in the most fun way that I could. <laughs> um, and yet express something that was very real, which was, you know, these kind of mercenary characters. Um, you know, not all, not all of the, the free people, um, were always noble, you know, and uh, in, a, in a story where you have very heroic African Americans, they're almost, almost super heroic and um, so noble and good. You also have these other characters that are 
are mercurial or um, or downright vile uh, that are of the period and um, and very real. There were black slave catchers. There were um, there were black trackers, um, and uh, and so that is expressed in bigger long. And I thought in this film, you know. It's very interesting that you have this portraiture of African-American life of the period, North and South, free and enslaved, from the very heroic to the vile. And so Bigger Long uh, represents the vile, the, um, the black man who's working with and for the white slave trackers and, and slave catchers. Um, And, and to me, it helps make realistic her world, all the dangers. Who can you trust? You know, how do you know you could trust? You couldn't trust someone just because they were black. You couldn't. Um, sometimes they would, they could be informants. Um, and so it's a very, very dangerous world for runaway slaves. Better be as good as they say. And of course, um, Omar Dorsey, you know, he's just a wonderful actor and such a great guy, you know. Um, but here he's playing, you know, a heavy. Got the roads covered. Ain't no place to go, but right here. Oh, we'll be waiting for him. Don't let him out of sight. So Harriet had these, not only would she fall unconscious sometimes, she would also have kind of religious trances. And you know, you just have to wait it out. I mean, she was talking to God. What's wrong with her? She prayed. I meant to procure you that way. What are we supposed to do, wait? She our leader. Get her! Don't touch her. She's talking to God. They're coming. So this is a story that is actually true to the Harriet Tubman story. She was leading a group of freedom seekers, and she felt she felt that there was danger, and and she, God told her go left. And so um, they stopped going in the direction that they were running. She turned left, and she's leading them in the way that God has told her to go. 
and she runs into a body of water, a river. And, uh, and God says, go on through. And so, now, the freedom seekers are watching her like she's crazy. You know, she's, she's going to just walk into a river and not know how deep it is or, you know, if she's going to make it to the other side. And yet, Harriet's faith is so strong that she, she walks into the water uh, because God told her that was the way to go. My wife and my family to drown like no So I wanted to express the conflict of, of the freedom seekers uh, that are like, she drown? Who goes yeah, we're not going in that water through her brother. I want to see freedom land for I die. And we know that, that Harriet carried this, this gun to protect herself, but also to encourage reluctant runaways um, to urge them on, uh, in fact. And, and she was willing to to kill someone because if if because the dead men tell no tales, right? So um, if she had to use her gun, you know, and convince uh, runaways that they needed to keep moving, she did it. This scene, um, it's very cold. It's about 37, 38 degrees. Um, it's the middle of the night. The water is, is freezing. It's a little warmer than the air, which is why you have this wonderful mist. Um, and we're out in a boat in the middle of, of this water, and, uh, and she literally walked from the shore to the boat um, in this freezing, frigid water. Um, and Cynthia wouldn't wear a wetsuit. She, she thought it would interfere with her performance. So, you know, as a director, I mean, Cynthia wanted to do her own stunts, and Cynthia wanted to remove the artifice between her and the character. And um, it's terrifying <laughs> as a director, you know, because, you know, I don't want her to die. But it's quite effective. And Walter in the tree, we actually shot later at the very end of, of the shoot uh, because, you know, we could carry that shot because he's in it alone. And so he had to do all that emoting um, by himself on the very last day, on the very last shot. But it's effective. It, it pulls together and, and it's amazing. What happened? I lost. So Walter represents to me redemption, you know? Um, Walter, Walter starts off as mercenary and working for whoever will pay them, uh, like many of these, these guys did. Um, but you know, he, he witnesses something almost miraculous and he finds that he can't, he can't turn them in. And that was an important uh, character for me, you know, the mercenary that can be redeemed.
Minted. That baby girl, Aaron Minto. You call her Minted. You call me Harry from now on. That's my freedom name. I'm Harriet Tubman, leader of this group. We do what I say. And I love this, you know. She comes triumphantly, <laughs> triumphantly back with, with her, her family and, and friends. Freedom-seeking slaves. I went down south and brought them back. God showed me the way. It's like, what must it have been like, you know? Suddenly, you cross this this line, and you're and you're free. Baby with his child. John didn't want my baby. I wrote this scene the night before we shot it. Being slaves. Harry. I wanted to express, so far you know, the things that can't be expressed. Um, and the studio had asked me for it. They said, you know, can she talk about what it, what it feels like to have these visions? And, and I thought, well, then she has to talk about God. And that, you know, that felt like a trap, you know? Like, how do you rate, a, rate a, what an actor's feeling about their faith? It's so hard to describe. And I wanted to, I wanted to give her this moment where she's with her friend. And she talks about what that experience is like for her what visions are like for her and what following God's voice is like for her. Fly off as soon as you walk. Seemed like I learned a And like I said, these this is also that same night that we shot the first scene in this in this space. And it was very late at night and we had to shoot very, very fast. And yet you have this wonderful scene that feels um it takes its time and it's very intimate. And I love the way Janelle listens. Wonder how she takes this in. And how Cynthia is so thoughtful. As Harriet, how she's so, you know, she's really trying to put it into words. But maybe we did two takes, two angles, two takes. And we were out of there, you know, we had to wrap. There I was with a suit and no husband. I felt a fool. He's the fool. It was a very tough schedule. And uh, like I said, I could not have done it without such a wonderful, wonderful and prepared cast. So eventually at some point, as we know from history, Harriet, um, Harriet becomes part of the Underground Railroad. Uh, she makes her own rules. Nobody could tell her what to do. She's not, um, she's her own boss. But she intersects with this network and becomes part of it. Williams still liked to call them the committee. They had this kind of lingo, you know, there were station masters and, um, you know, conductors and abductors. And she becomes a conductor on the Underground Railroad. 
she both is an abductor and a conductor. She, she abducts slaves directly from the plantations, um, but she is a conductor. She also conducts them to safety, to safe houses, run by station masters. Um, you know, so, so, so the Underground Railroad is really just kind of a network of people, sometimes a loose network, sometimes a tight network, but a network of people working together to help bring enslaved people to freedom. And uh, she becomes a conductor on the railroad. So what does that mean? That means she has to keep going back, keep going back to where she was enslaved at terrible personal risk to herself. And, um, and this becomes a mission of hers. Um, and she sings, Go Down Moses. And depending on what verse she sings, it's an indication of whether it's safe to run right now or whether they have to wait until later. I mean, very kind of intricate communication in these songs. And that's, that's, that's a real Harry Tubman story. And she meets them sometimes. She brings shoes so that they don't have to run barefoot. And they don't know who is leading these slaves off. Um, but she gets a reputation. There's somebody named Moses. There's somebody called Moses that, that is leading slaves off. So this is very fun to shoot. Um, this is actually the first day. This is the first thing we shot. And when I saw her run, when I first saw Cynthia run as Harriet, I'm like, oh, that, that's her, that's Harriet. Uh, that woman hanging clothes is, is one of our producers, Daniela Toplin-Lumberg. <laughs> uh, but I'm trying to show this network of people that work together. You know, the farmer, there were farmers, there were common people, the, the slaves, the freedom-seeking slaves hid in the hulls of ships and boats. And there were black captains and, and white captains, in fact, that helped them along the way. And black blackjacks, black seamen that, that helped them. And she was able to do this through that network of people. And these, um, these enslaved people would, would come into William Still's office and, and give their stories. And as I was writing the script, rewriting the script, I started listening to Center Man, this Nina Simone song, and I felt that it was the movie, you know, this momentum, the soul, the crescendo, and I knew I wanted to use it someplace in the movie. And uh, so with my editor, Wyatt Smith, you know, he put together, first put together, um, this sequence with Sinner Man, and it just it just worked for us, you know. Um, honestly, I this was Wyatt uh, Wyatt edited this very much the way it is in the movie. It's almost unchanged from his first edit of that montage um, to Sinner Man. He's a wonderful editor. I can reach up. No, it's it's reckless to try something like that right now. I forbid it. You forbid. So of course, montages are great ways of passing time and showing the evolution. Of, um, of her work with the Underground Railroad. But Harriet, Harriet is haunted uh, by the fact that her sister is still enslaved. And, um, and she went back, she went back to try and convince her sister to come with her. 
But now um, there's this epidemic of runaway slaves, and um, and the whites uh, slave owners are very um, aware of this and very very traumatized and upset by the loss of property, and. Um, Eliza Brodus hid Rachel's children from her and wouldn't tell her where they were. Um, and so that was often, you know, white slave owners liked enslaved people to have children um, because it was a way of controlling them. And uh, I wanted to explore in this scene um, those that didn't run because they had their reasons and often, almost always, I mean, almost all of the time when you hear these stories, they didn't want to go because they didn't want to leave their family or their children. And this reality is so well expressed in the real story of Rachel because they hid Rachel's children and she wouldn't leave them. She wouldn't leave them if... And Harriet tries to convince her to come with her, and Rachel won't go. And it's one of the great heartbreaks of Harriet's life uh, that she's not able to persuade her sister to come with her. What, what about Marion? Robert's wife. She's still here. She found another man, Matt. I think that there's there's a misconception that um that you know in pop culture that um that there was a choice to being an enslaved person, that's not true. It was a very massive thing to run, to risk your life, risk being maimed, having your feet, your legs cut off, um, being tortured and left by the side of the road as a warning for others, and being separated from your family. And so I wanted to speak to those people that had to stay enslaved and that made these terrible, terrible choices. I quite like this scene, you know. Walter's conversion. What services they be? Well, I can do most in the job. A to Z. Know the woods, the rivers around here. Most folks in them. And Walter ends up being kind of one of the wonderful characters in the movie. Um, because, you know, you follow his arc. He becomes a believer. It seemed like he talked back. Maybe you could. Introduce us. And of course, I got some explaining to do. Henry Hunter Hall, we call him Hunter. He's, he's quite a lovely young actor, you know. He's, um, this was his first major lead in a movie. And, uh, and he, he's, he's lovely. So, horses, you know, <laughs> horses were one of the many things we had to deal with. Um, I'd never done a movie that involved horses and horse riding and animals and um, and here, you know, horses, dogs, guns, babies, you know, we, we um, in the woods at night, it was, uh, it was quite a lot to manage, but, um, you know, as you're watching it, you kind of just, just go with it, it's amazing. I love the scene with Joe Alwyn. He's just great. And and Omar Dorsey, they're, they have quite a, a lot of fun with the scene. heard a rumor. Said that slave that led your slaves off. The one y'all been looking so hard for. 
the one they call Moses. Well, Moses ain't a nigger. And he ain't a woman. So there were informants, black informants, that would kind of try and get um, the word from enslaved people, try and figure out what had happened to with runaways, and, um, and then would inform. And, uh, and so in the story, you have eventually Gideon Brodus gets the word that, that Moses is Minty, the Minty he's looking for. At some point, the slave owners of the South put more and more together, more information together about who Moses might be. But it's true that at first they thought it was, they thought it was a white abolitionist in blackface because they could not believe that a black person was capable of that kind of organized thought. You know, in the mental gymnastics that white slave owners had to do in order to justify having people as property, they had convinced themselves that blacks were not capable of that kind of thought. And um, it's very interesting uh, to me because it's like they made themselves ignorant by underestimating people, and that was their downfall in many ways. And it was Harriet's strength, their ingenuity. We have to get you on a train north. I put your family on the last train with Douglas. You'll see they get safety to the border, all right? So this scene, of course, is um, is quite complicated to shoot, but but very fun. The Fugitive Slave Act actually passed not that long after Harriet um, made it to freedom, but I put it more towards the climax of the film, more, you know, more in kind of a, a second-act position. You know, for dramatic purposes, honestly, you know, I, um, I thought this was where it belonged dramatically in the film. Um, but it's true that it caused chaos. Uh, Frederick Douglass tells us that there was chaos on the street, um, people, people running with their belongings. Tell us where she is. And so I wanted to include this scene after a period of 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 feeling that the that the north was a safe place now it's no longer safe you know now they can be rounded up by slave catchers and and their former owners wherever they are in the country it's this huge dramatic moment in history and and of course we have to brutalize poor marie um but Marie, Marie has talked to Harriet, and Marie believes her. Marie believes that Harriet is touched by God. And so she won't give her away. And she makes the ultimate sacrifice for, for Harriet. So um, it's, it's a very emotional scene to shoot, you know, um, and they're, they're so wonderful together. And, you know, it's pretty traumatic um, for us as well as for the audience. And here, Janelle is just so magnificent. And who would think? It's almost like it's, it's not real, but there she goes, and she just drops this one beautiful tear as she dies. It's like, oh, my God, way to die, Janelle Monet. Just beautiful. And Harriet is traumatized. 
So at some point, that's John Brown. At some point, she encounters him in about 1858. Um, but I just we, we wanted to give you just a taste of that he's there, um, a presence beginning to um, to preach about about enslaved people's right for freedom and, and the right to fight for freedom. Make sure she's safe. And I had Gideon come after her and and experience this loss of seeing her slip through his fingers and the look, the look on his face, you know. He's lost her. And then Rakim, who plays Jasper, he's just a, a, a lovely actor. And um, to me, he expresses this strength of these black captains. You know, he's, he's a big guy, as you can see. Safe now. And um, and it's his boat, you know. He's the captain of that boat, and he gets her to safety and 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 up to St. Catharines, where she brings her family for safety. And at some point, you know, as she's made a life there. And she's um, working, you know, she, she's, she's cooking, making baked goods. She's doing the things that she did to make money. Um, she gets word that her sister has died. And, um, and family. in fact, the Reverend wrote her, and you, the words in the letter that moved me were, has gone to meet that good friend of the slave, the angel of death. People often ask me what Rachel died of, and I say she died of slavery. Perhaps she found that her children had been sold, and she died of a broken heart. And Harriet is devastated. So sorry to hear about your sister. But there's this quality in her that um, that I think is true in black women and in women, um, where she's able to turn great sorrow into a kind of strength. And I wrote this into the script. I said her sorrow is like a superhero's cloak. And, you know, she wears her sorrow and it gives her strength at the same time. And, and Cynthia so perfectly captured this in this scene. God help the man without free papers. How are we going to get our passengers? So there's this wonderful quote that we know that Harriet said. Um, and I had to get to the quote. I had to write around uh, to arrive at the quote. Um, and the quote is, I've seen their, uh, I've heard their sighs, I've seen their tears, and I would give every last drop of blood in my veins to free them. We know Harriet said those words. So I had to find a way to write, uh, write into that dialogue. Carriage, horseback, on foot if necessary. Harriet, 
Cynthia came to do this scene and, um, you know, I'm kind of talking to the background players and I'm saying, okay, you listen to this, you listen to her speak and you're moved and, and um, at a certain point you, you applaud. And Cynthia said, no, I have to make them applaud. <laughs> she's so fierce. She's, she's like, no, I'm gonna get it in, my, in the performance and then they'll want to clap. <laughs> um, she had to get them there. She knew she had to get them there. Beautiful homes, beautiful wives. And so she, she gives this incredibly moving speech. Beat for not working, for they understand what work is. Girls raped for their first blood. Brothers whipped to their back and ribbon. Sisters sold from their babies. You know, this is what she's seen. This is what she brings. She's not Frederick Douglass, who, who ran away when he was 10. You know, she's, she's, she was an adult. She was in her late 20s, her mid to late 20s when she, when she ran away. And she remembers it so vividly because it was yesterday, you know? And she knows the suffering that her people are going through. And she won't give up. Go wherever I gotta go. However I gotta do it to free as many slaves. And she just, she nails this scene. To this beast, this monster called slavery is slain dead. Amen. And, uh, you know, I really love the score here. I, 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 I wanted, I wanted it big and, um, Anthony and, you know, American and um, Terrence Blanchard, such a wonderful composer. So it's my, it's my fourth film with Terrence Blanchard. And uh, he and I also did an opera together at the libretto for his second opera, which is called A Fire Shut Up In My Bones. And, um, and this pianist is in his band that did the visions. Um, his name is Fabian Al Alazar. And he did this kind of, I, I knew I wanted a musicality to the visions. And, and so he, he has this way of playing the piano. It's kind of tricked out piano um, to give us that sound. So I want y'all to be ready. Yeah. Yeah. Time is running out. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. I see the sign. Yeah. So I found this song. In this scene, I knew I didn't want him to just be giving a sermon, Reverend Green. I wanted him to sing. And, you know, Vondi's a singer. And I found this song of the period, and I thought it was great, you know? And, and I love that in this period they talked about the sign of the judgment because, you know, it can mean, it means a lot of things. It has a double meaning like so many of the spirituals did. And I think, you know, time is running out. It's the sign of the judgment. And in this movie, um, time is running out and, and, you know, the sign of the judgment, it's coming. So she comes back, she, she comes back because, Harriet comes back because she, she finds out her father is in danger. What Harriet didn't know was that her father, Ben, actually worked with the Underground Railroad. And um, this group of, of fugitives had escaped. Uh, they call them the Dover Eight. And, um, 
One of them had gotten caught and confessed and uh, revealed that they'd hid, that Ben Ross had hid them, probably in the corn crib where he hid her brothers. And he was in grave danger. They were coming to arrest him. And Harriet finds out miraculously, um, uh, probably through a vision. That's the only way to explain how she had time to get down to rescue her parents. So even though her parents are, are at this point are, are free, technically, they are in grave danger. And Harriet realizes it and, um, and comes to rescue them. And at this point in their lives, they're, they're, they're older and they are f getting frail. And how is she going to get them to safety? They can't run through the woods. So she has a cart built, this, like, tricked-up cart that she can rescue her parents in, and somehow she's able to bring them to safety. And so, um, you know, I wanted to talk about the people that helped Harriet along the way. Um, we don't know who they all were, you know? Uh, we read in history, oh, Harriet had a cart built, or Harriet built a cart, and, um, and so Walter becomes that person for her, too. She, he's one of the many people who's helping her achieve these things. I can't pull my eyes from you. I need to look at you. No. Imagine that she escapes to freedom, comes back, and is able to rescue her brothers and her parents. She tries to rescue her husband. He won't go. She tries to rescue her sister. And she loses both her husband and her sister. But she's actually able to bring her brothers and her parents to freedom. I mean, it's quite an incredible story. And we don't know exactly how she did it. But at this point in the, in the movie and in the screenplay for me, she's becoming Moses. She's, um, you know, she's, she's gone from being Harriet. She's gone from being, you know, Minty to Harriet, and now she's kind of in her Moses part. She's in her, her mythical kind of... Um, her mythic, her more mythical self. I love Jennifer in this scene. What must it have felt like for her? I've tried to imagine what, what it must have felt like. She's, her husband dies, she's um, in debt, and now her, her slaves are running away, you know? And she's a desperate, desperate woman. Certainly, if anyone were to find out that the famous Moses was their former slave, they would have been, um, you know, probably killed. Because the, the, the fury is so high at this point, you know, the fury of this lost property, this epidemic of runaways, has tension so high. And in this decade before the Civil War, you know, this is just before the Civil War, the country's in such turmoil and there's such paranoia and who's, you know, are they going to be able to hold on to their way of life? Are the Southerners going to be able to hold on to their way of life? 
and their property. And they are, they're willing to fight for it. And this is, of course, what eventually divides the country. She went out? Girl, go get us more brandy from the storeroom. I got a better idea. Don't be scared, Anger. I'm your mama's sister. We family. So she does rescue um, a young girl named uh, Angerine, um, but she also had it, her niece was Angerine, and um, there's a record of her rescuing somebody with that name, but I don't know if it was the niece that was Rachel's daughter. But I wanted her at this point to kind of move into her more mythical self, and so I have, I have her become the ultimate heroin bandit, you know? So, of course, it's a Joan of Arc story for me, you know, when I realized that, that Harriet was kind of uh, our Joan of Arc, you know, um, that she had these visions and felt that God was guiding her. I thought, um, you know, I wanted to speak of her in those terms. That's the way I thought of her. That's the way I thought of the story as a Joan of Arc story, you know. So we had a lot of fun with this scene, <laughs> obviously. So this is the performance of Eliza's life. You know, she she um, <laughs> she has to convince them that she's she's on their side, and I love her in that scene. Go down, Moses. Way down in Egypt's land. So once again, she uses, she communicates that she's there. Who's going to come with her? We're going to need a bigger car. Now, how do they how do they maneuver with the cart? You know, it's so interesting. We don't know how she managed on the roads with the cart to um, to get her parents and this group of enslaved people to freedom. How did she do it? But we do know this story. We know that at one point she was able to smuggle freedom seekers in a cart. I think in real life it was a bricklayer's cart. They're gonna have to come this way. We got every other way blocked off. And in every version of the Harriet Tubman histories, there's a there's a Tilly, uh, uh, a character that named Tilly, a woman, who is her master's daughter and is very very light skinned and passes for white, passes as her her um, her slave master, and um, and they're able to escape. And this was, of course, very realistic. Um, there were many uh, enslaved people that were the daughters of um, of their slave masters through sexual um, assault. Gentlemen, good day. What's all this? And so we brought Tilly into this scene. You got a surprise. Uh, because I, I thought it was important. I thought it was such an interesting... Um, character, you know? She has to be brave enough to to do this. And Catherine's so wonderful, you know, uh, this actress. When a man can't trust his own slaves, 
Best luck to you. Ho, ho. You can imagine her quaking as... Quaking with fear, you know, she has to pull this off. But Tilly was a real character in the Harry Tubman, in Harry Tubman story, you know? Yes, sir. He's my daddy. I thought I saw You know, and to me, um, you know, it's a statement. Tell him Ned it's a statement. He is her daddy, and he's her slave master. And she's no doubt uh, the child of, of brutal assault. Um, and yet she, in this moment, is triumphant and able to help, you know, <laughs> able to help Harriet's band of freedom seekers. And, you know, Walter's given her his clothes, and he's in her clothes, and, you know, we had, we had some fun with it. And, and Tilly's just, you know, sick with it. <laughs> you know, the, the release of um, having gotten away with it. And the, the movie is moving into its more, you know, mythic kind of superhero um, hero's journey. I really saw it as a hero's journey, and... Um, a kind of epic hero's journey. He's got five daughters. And in fact, you know, we don't know exactly how she pulled all of this off. Um, we have these anecdotes, these stories um, from her life that she told her contemporaries or that, uh, you know, that we know from history. But we don't know how she did it. You know, she must have. Her contemporaries came to believe that she must believe you know, they said, we don't know if we believe it. It's irrelevant if we believe it. She believes it. She believes that she was guided by God, and we can't explain how else she was able to survive. And anger, too. No massive forcing us to do nothing. We're going to be together. I'm going to spoil you. You know, Ritz a very emotional character. Amrit um, was very fierce, very emotional, um, shattered by the loss of her daughters. Uh, and Harriet's able to to save her and um, and bring them to freedom. She's able to save her father from a horrible, horrible end. Uh, I'm sure they would have tortured him. And um, I don't think they would have just hung him. They would have tortured him to death for having harbored fugitive slaves if they discovered them, and somehow she is able to, you know, swoop in and rescue her parents. Get everybody undercover, now. Get him. So, you know, she says she was divinely guided, and um, ultimately, you know, I took her word for it. Uh, there, There's no other way to explain it. Walter? Um, Except we know she was incredibly, incredibly brave. Uh, we know she felt fear because she described it. She said, when, when there's danger near, I feel a flutter in my chest. But somehow she was able to sense it and, and be guided to, um, you know, literally on which way to turn um, and place herself in incredible danger in order for her band of fugitives her passengers, as they were called in the Underground Railroad, um, to be free. 
So like I said, at this point, you know, um, this is the mythic Moses, right? And I wanted her to um, wear red velvet. <laughs> uh, Paul had originally designed something, something more practical, a traveling suit. And I said, no, she's, you know, it's a climax and she's her mythic Moses self. And I wanted to wear red velvet. <laughs> um, so, so he came up with this outfit, which, you know, what I love about Paul is his costumes are incredibly uh, real and yet mythic at the same time, you know? Um, and of course, here, Gideon exerts his dominion over the bodies of these people, his former slave, who he, he wants to kill himself. He's not gonna let anybody do the job for him. And, and, um, and bigger, Long, the, the slave hunter who, who was in his employ. Um, it's nothing more than him exerting his control over her. You know, he, he feels that he owns her and he's gonna bring her down himself. And, um, and his determination here, you know, is, is ultimately his demise. But make no mistake, it's because he wants to kill her himself. Um, she's foiled him all these years. It's very cold this day, about 27 degrees. I think it had warmed up a couple of degrees by the time we shot this, but it was extremely cold. Off your horse. Off your horse. So, um... I love that on your knees. she gets Gideon on his knees and she stands over him. You know, her strength and his weakness. And he's completely in her power. Didn't have to end like this. And yet he's still leaning on talking shit. Good to stay with us. If only he knew how to behave. But you are. And I, um, I wanted her to say her piece. And I wanted him to say his piece, you know? And you like me too. I wanted Harriet to express herself in her words. Praying for me when I was sick. Asking God to keep me well. I asked God how a sickly little boy could think he owned me. You know, they have completely different ideas about what their relationship was. He thinks she's property, and he thinks they were friends somehow. Here's my favorite quote. Ever since your daddy sold my sisters, I prayed for God to make me strong enough. I prayed for God to make me strong enough to fight, and that's what I prayed for ever since. I love that Harriet doesn't say, "I prayed for God to give me strength." I prayed for God to make me strong. There's something so um, fierce about that, you know? I prayed for God to make me strong enough to fight, and that's what I prayed for ever since. I figured there was one of two things I had a right to, liberty or death. If I couldn't have one, I'd have the other. I mean, these are things Harriet said. These are authentic Harriet quotes, and... I'm not there to watch it. What a woman. I can almost smell it now. Like 
ghost and pig. You're gonna die right here. Yeah, but, um... But should she kill him? On his knees, now in front of her, in his weakest so point. Now she curses him. The moans of a generation of young men. She knows that the Civil War is going to take him down, and he'll die in agony for a lost cause. with his Confederate brethren on a freezing, blood-soaked field. For the sin of slavery. Harriet, as far as I know, as far as historians know, never killed anyone. So um, I wasn't going to make her a murderer. I thought it was stronger for her to know that he was going to he was going to die in the Civil War. Um, to me, Gideon represents the dying South, the old South, the old Confederacy. Um, that is doomed. They don't know it yet, but they're doomed. And and she's triumphant. She gets on his horse. You tried to destroy my family, but you can't. So, two years before the Civil War, Harriet was in the home of a friend, an abolitionist friend, and she had a vision. She woke from a vision, and she said, my people are free, my people are free, and she was ecstatic. And her friend is skeptical. He's saying... Not in our lifetime. Uh, and she says, no, God, just show me my people are free. And she knew before the Civil War even started, she predicted the emancipation. And she celebrated then. By the time um, the Emancipation Proclamation is I issued and people are celebrating, they asked Harriet why she wasn't celebrating, and she said, I had my jubilee two years ago when God told me my people were free. But the snake, he rolled up there while the doctor cut bites you again. And we know that she, she ends up in command of black troops in South Carolina and um, ends up being a spy. She's a nurse and a spy for the Union Army. And uh, there was a point at which I had a lot more of the Civil War in the script. And there was a lot more of it in, in Greg's script. He and I both had versions of it. But, you know, we had um, budget and schedule constraints, and we weren't able to include that much of it. But I wanted to give you a sense of this part of her life where she's a leader of men, and she does this kind of incredible rescue because even after the Emancipation's Proclamation has been issued, the war is still raging. And, um, and of course, people aren't just uh, freeing their, in, their slaves. They, um, they're keeping them enslaved. And there were all these slaves downriver. And they're feeding rebel troops with, with their rice that they're cultivating. And so there's this spectacular rescue, the Combahee River Raid. And they go downriver. Um, Harriet's team of spies has spread the word to the enslaved people that when she gives a signal, they're to run. And she has to trust. Is her network successful? Are they really going to run? And then 
and then they come. And this is, um, this was a real scene. They come running. They're carrying belongings with them. They're carrying livestock, some of them. They're carrying their children, and they're running for freedom. And they run into the water. Before their slave owners and the Confederacy knows what hit them. And by the time they come, you know, straggling after them, um, she's won. And it's a fierce battle rages, and uh, they burn down the plantations, they burn down the actual plantations, and, and, and they rescued over 750 slaves. And, um, and Harriet led those troops. She's one of the few women to, to ever lead troops into battle in the history of our country. I mean, this amazing life goes on. She lives to be 91, you know, which is incredibly ancient. Uh, she continues to do good work. What an amazing life. And so I wanted her to have this reunion with her family who are now in upstate New York, living on Senator Seward's property, this property that she's bought from him. And she's got them all together, and they did. They lived with her. And, you know, she's, she's won. And look at this expression on her face. I just love it. And her last words were, I go to prepare a place for you. I mean, how incredible. And then we bring in this, this photograph of Harriet um, at about that period where you last saw her in the film, played by Cynthia. That's about the age she was in the photograph. And then while we were shooting, we had, um, we'd had these photographs taken by this wonderful photographer who had used period photography to take these daguerreotypes of, um, of the cast while they were in costume. And, and Wyatt Smith, our editor, cut this title sequence using those photographs. I knew I wanted Cynthia to sing the in-title song, but I was looking for a very special song and I heard tons of demos. I started hearing demos early on uh, in the process before I even started shooting. And uh, great demos by wonderful artists and I was just looking for this particular sound, and Terrence Blanchard turned me on to Joshua Campbell, a very young songwriter who was, um, who was in Divinity School and had written a tribute to John Lewis that I loved. And so I asked Joshua to, to take a shot at the entitled song, and he came up with the first draft of this song, Stand Up, and, and Cynthia worked with him and they rewrote it together to fit Cynthia's voice and came up with this wonderful entitled song that I'm incredibly proud of. Working on Harriet was one of the most gratifying experiences of my life. Um, it's incredible to do a story about a real person that you respect on this level, a hero's journey of a real American hero, a woman that was able to accomplish all this through sheer force of will, 
determination, and of course, incredible courage. And yes, maybe she was divine. Maybe, maybe, maybe God had a hand in it, you know? But she was one woman, uh, one very righteous, very brave woman, very powerful woman. And I think there's a lesson, so many lessons to be learned from her about resistance, about what you're willing to do for your ideals, what she was willing to do for freedom, and and just what can be accomplished, you know, what, what an ordinary person can accomplish, an individual that with determination and force of will, you know, and courage, we can change history. We can make life look more like what we want it to look like, you know? And that was a message for me, and it's a message that I want the audience to come away with.